Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that refuses to wear a mask while recording, but only because otherwise the show would sound a lot like this. I'm Tina Duyev and this week, as porridge that you've eaten then spat back out into the bowl, Michael Gove says that he doesn't think face masks should be compulsory in shops. Is that just because he isn't sure which of his two faces to put one on, or because he knows he's being harmful to others, not wearing a mask over his trampled pomegranate face at all times? Will face masks in shops be compulsory in England like they are now in Scotland? Prime Minister in exploded chicken coop wreckage Boris Johnson says they should be worn in shops as he says they have a real value in confined spaces, just not in any that he's been in for the past four months, obviously. Boris Johnson wore his mask in several different shops for photo ops to show that he'd done it for once, but he looked constantly uncomfortable, probably on account of the bullshit he spouts now forcefully being trapped by his mouth. The next Conservative Party slogan should really be better late than never, eh? I mean, take the new Brexit slogan, check, change, go, which sounds like our routine when we leave the house. Now my daughter, sorry, agent, is out of nappies. It's the new get ready for Brexit that has cost them £93 million in the middle of an economic crisis and is now being rolled out after the government told us all to get ready for Brexit last autumn, but then they still weren't ready, so you had to wait around, eventually getting unready because what's the point, before they then decided now, when everyone's busy with coronavirus, and absolutely not ready to suddenly say it's time to get ready again. I don't want to compare everything the government do with the plight of one specific toddler, but again, it's pretty much like exactly when we want our daughter, sorry, my agent, to go to the park and we get her all ready and we get her dressed and she doesn't want to go if it means putting her shoes on and actually doing the prep to make it an easy journey, but instead later when she's not wearing any of the right clothes and we've given up, she demands we go to the park. It's toddler irrationality that we're seeing in Westminster right now, with similar park-based tantrums too, only this time it's a whopping great big car park in Kent, the Garden of England, essentially rushing through a shitty version of Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi. Yes, if you live in or near Ashford, you'll soon be finding out that you're living in a glorified truck stop as the Department of Transport bought the land without much warning to turn it into a post-Brexit customs centre for up to 10,000 lorries. This is without any consultation at all, as you know, everyone did vote for this, and if you don't remember all those national adverts saying, vote Brexit and suck on an exhaust pipe as all the bits you like about your area become a theme park based on the 1971 film Jewel, then that's your fault. That's not what the new adverts say now, obviously. Instead, it's all UK's new start. Let's get going. Followed by information that if you do want to get going anywhere other than the UK, it'll cost you a lot more travel insurance. Your phone bill will look like you only use it to call a premium party line. And if you're a business, it'll just be easier to throw your products in the sea and hope someone on the beach finds them and hits up your PayPal. Still, while it might be scary for most industries, it's nice to hear that even in these uncertain times, startups like Project Fear are being supported till they can become fully realised. Secretary of State for International Trade and the sort of person who gets thwarted by automatic doors, Liz Truss, sent a letter to the Prime Minister that was leaked to the press, saying she was concerned that border plans won't actually come in until July 2021, because there's nothing like getting going six months after everyone else has crossed the finish line and packed up the race. Truss said this delay could lead to smuggling from Europe, which they don't want as the whole point of Brexit was just to benefit British criminals. 
Truss was apparently rebuked for this letter by the actual Prime Minister, an anemic matchstick, Dominic Cummings, who blamed the leaking of it on her, as though she'd be capable of such a thing when all his Truss knows how to do is pour photo ops of her holding a phone in different countries. Farmers protested against lowering of food standards and supermarkets say they won't stock chlorinated chicken. So Trust was wheeled out post-admonishment to insist that it isn't on the table for a UK-US deal to lower food standards. Still though, if you do need your beef full of hormones, I'm sure we can find someone with a lifeboat who can drop it off at the beach after January. Home Secretary and personification of catching your finger in a car door, Pretty Patel, laid out the new post-Brexit immigration rules, which include a special health and care visa for workers who have a confirmed job within the NHS, but they don't include anyone doing social care. So, it's a health and care visa in the same way affordable housing is only one of those things. Is it because social care has the word social in it that Conservatives can't bring themselves to help the sector? It might explain why Boris Johnson refused to apologise to care home workers after saying it was their fault so many died in care homes. I just don't think he understands what it is that they do and why they don't just leave the residence for some younger ones. It must be really upsetting being clapped one week and derided the next, and I say that as a stand-up comedian who's had an entire career like that. The whole post-Brexit border infrastructure is going to cost £705 million because I don't know if you realise, but what's really needed as we head into the worst recession since the 1930s is throwing cash at an entirely unnecessary traffic jam. This wasn't really mentioned in the summer statement by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, a constant game of is it a smile or is he in severe pain? But I guess it doesn't really fit in with the idea of his plan for jobs if the only work will be in roadside greasy spoons on the M20. Nor was it mentioned that most of the government's money is just going to Dominic Cummings' friends with an £840,000 contract handed to one of his and Michael Gove's pals to research public opinion on government policies, presumably so they can then bin any critical ones before Dom reads them and turns up at the person's house pissed and threatening to bottle them. The company is called Public First, which is either a joke or it's alluding to who has to get sacrificed first. There's also the AI firm that worked on Vote Leave that's had 13 contracts with central government since 2010, even though it's arguable that there's enough artificial intelligence in number 10 as it is. And this week, Dominic Cummings has been advertising for £135,000 a year data expert so he can set up a skunk works in number 10, so-called because everything they do stinks and you'd have to be high off your tits to think it seems good. But use of big data did deliver a leave vote successfully, so it does make more sense for the government to focus on that than, say, the announcement of the man who'd not just drop a clagger but somehow make them extinct while spending money on a government programme to save the moon whistlers, Chris Grayling, and him being made chair of the Intelligence Committee. No, not in the furniture sense, which I still wouldn't have faith in him managing to do. Chris Grayling will oversee the publication of the report into Russian interference in the election and suddenly you can see why his new position makes sense as on the day of publication he'll probably announce that a seagull stole it from him and he's had to pay someone who doesn't believe Russia exists £15 million to rewrite it using a melted crayon. So there's always money for monumental wastes of money, but for you? Well, don't worry, as Rishi Sunak wants you to eat out to help out, which is very much an admission he'd like the hospitality sector to go down. It's a shame, as I think the tagline, give head as there's 50,000 unnecessarily dead, works a lot better. Or even, suck because we really do, or fellatio because the economy is very, very slow. I mean, the options are endless. Unlike yours, which seem to be just that you can get a voucher for £10 off certain restaurants and hopefully you'll be able to wave that at your landlord and they'll be so excited about the sheer notion of going to TGI Fridays not on a Friday that they'll let you off three months of rent arrears. It'll cost £500 million to make sure everyone can have money off a Nando's, which is more than four times the cost of giving free school meals to kids during the summer holidays, something a footballer had to persuade the government to do. The issue, I guess, is that it's harder for Conservatives to do photo ops with children without there being a risk that one of them's the Prime Minister's. Whereas Sunak was able to show off that he knows how to steal economic policies from a takeaway menu by doing a stint as a waiter in Wagamama's, where he failed to wear a mask or follow any of the safety procedures needed, meaning he really increased the risk of customers getting COVID-19, though it's unlikely they'd get it all at the same time or in the order they expected. I'm sure Rishi learned from his experience, and the autumn budget will consist of a load of random numbers scribbled in Byro on a placemat. The other big economic announcements were a job retention scheme which gives businesses money to keep staff furloughed until they've received the money and then they can make those people redundant. There's also a kickstart scheme for young people which is so called as it makes sure their future gets a kicking before they've even begun to plan it. 
There was still no support for small businesses. Uh, Rishi Sunak also said the furlough scheme can't go on forever, and I agree, as that might make people incorrectly think the Conservatives have empathy. And apparently there will soon be an announcement of support for those who are out of work for a longer period with a new large-scale employment offer, which probably means you'll be weighing all the fruit you've picked as part of your farming chain gang. But a lot of the not very good ideas to get the economy started revolve around whether everyone's feeling safe enough to go out and, well, eat out or, you know, copulate in a shop to make sure the pound doesn't drop or something. But it's a confusing message when coupled with the Conservative conference being cancelled due to coronavirus spreading fears. Though I suppose they do have the worry that Boris Johnson will insist on shaking everyone's hands himself. Instead, they'll be having a virtual conference in September, though arguably that is what they have every year, considering there's never anyone of actual substance that takes part. My hope is they'll run the conference on Zoom, forget to unmute everyone and have to blame themselves for cancel culture. But of course they can't have a real conference when their own ministers don't know when it is or isn't best to wear a face mask. Pretty Patel wore one outdoors during her visit to Calais, but took it off for her indoor meetings, presumably wearing it because she was more worried she might breathe in European air and have to deport herself in a few months' time. Lord Chancellor and 70s newsreader Robert Buckland said he's mandatory perhaps on masks, which sounds like a shit Richard Curtis film, with several scenes involving cue cards as everyone's too symptomatic to get nearer to each other. Michael Gove said he trusted people's common sense when it came to mask wearing, you know, the same people that Boris Johnson said were taking liberties when they overcrowded beaches just weeks ago. In Scotland, the first minister and guinea pig with insomnia, Nicola Sturgeon, said that Scots should get used to wearing face masks for the foreseeable future, but due to age expectancy, that's not that long for most of them. Though it is likely to be a lot longer than any English person on account of the lack of masks. And that's even more likely with factors such as the health secretary and shin pad for a head Matt Hancock saying the UK won't be joining the EU COVID-19 vaccine scheme as he says Britain is further ahead. In what? Unnecessary deaths? The big issue is that apparently if we joined, we'd get no say in which pharmaceutical manufacturers are used and the British government would probably prefer to spunk all the cash it has for vaccine use on one of Dominic Cummings' friends who reckon they got rid of coronavirus by eating the dirt from round the rim of the fridge. It's good to know these decisions are coming from Matt Hancock though, a man so on the ball he accidentally claimed there'd been a spike of infections in Keighley, causing panic among local residents, when it was in fact in Kirklees, 25 miles away, and had already been contained. Still, it must be hard for Hancock to know the difference, as both places are roughly 60 miles from where Daniel Rashford was born. It's good to know the strategy for local lockdowns is to close everywhere with the same first letter as an initial response. The Culture Secretary and last plank in the woodshop, Oliver Dowden, announced that outdoor performances can take place, which is great news for all the theatres that will need four to six weeks of rehearsal time, meaning they'll have a show just in time for weather to be too cold again for anyone to come along. Glyndebourne Opera will be starting outdoor concerts soon though, which is great news for everyone with all of the money, and it'll have limited audiences because what could be more fitting for our current times than willingly paying too much for some sort of European tragedy? Cricket has restarted, even though everyone in the government has been stumped for months, and pools and gyms will be open from July the 25th, as nothing helps you lose weight like you're using a sweated-on machine and then being put into an induced coma two weeks later. Will you have to wear masks for any of those activities? Well, it's hard to say, but for the government, they'll have a hard time stopping theirs from slipping, whatever they do, showing a face underneath that really couldn't give a shit. In other news, the UK is to sell arms to Saudi Arabia again as they say that possible war crimes committed in Yemen are isolated incidents, like somehow the entire Middle Eastern regime are all lone wolves. The announcement came a day after sanctions were placed on Saudis who were involved in the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, almost as though the government's plan was to say, hey, we'll help you with unlawful killing as long as you do it somewhere else. Currently, the UK is selling spyware and wiretaps to 17 repressive regimes around the world, but I guess that it fits that post-Brexit, our main export would be to do with listening to people being absolutely miserable. Labour have demanded the publication of the report into allegations of bullying by Priti Patel, after there are suggestions that Downing Street have demanded a senior civil servant clear the Home Secretary of all charges. It's a great move to prove your minister isn't a bully by bullying someone else till they agree with you. Maybe that's just what they see as basic negotiation skills, though, which would explain why upside-down Kate Marc Francois threatened the UK's most senior army general by telling him Dominic Cummings was going to sort him out. Because Francois is the sort of idiot who'd shout don't tell me what to do at a traffic-like green man before breaking his foot giving it a kick and promptly being run over. The idea that Dominic Cummings would sort out a top army general is hilarious at best, and just adds to my theory that he's a weedy villain in a Disney film who may invent some clever things but will eventually get beaten by a baby in a cape, and it would be a good twist if that baby turned out to be Francois. 
Cummings is going to tour the UK's top military sites during a big defence spending review, though I'd argue if any of them let an unelected advisor in to begin with, they're already not doing a good enough job to be kept. Should all Cummings' plans go ahead, the army will be cut by up to 10,000 staff. Fingers crossed we'll then get invaded and taken over by a more compassionate country like, I don't know, North Korea. Keir Starmer, aka the love child of spare plane parts and a rejected Eurovision singer, has been Labour leader for 100 days already. Yeah, I know, it's flown by, hasn't it, without any policies? And a YouGov poll says that he's seen as more similar to former Prime Minister and carbonite spillage Theresa May than to former Labour leader and sickly terrier Jeremy Corbyn. But does that just mean he's dead behind the eyes and will be forced out by his own party within three years? YouGov's poll also has Labour 10 points behind the Conservatives, though I bet if they had a new leader, they'd be 20 points ahead. Oh, oh shit. Oh well. Still, I do understand the Conservatives' huge lead. I mean, I've definitely had moments where I feel like the best hope for this country is if we were all wiped out. And lastly, US President and irradiated Clegnut Donald Trump wore a face mask for the first ever time, which must have been unusual for him to opt for a smaller head covering than his usual pillowcase with eye holes. Speaking of dangerous populists, Brazilian president and Sith game show host Jair Bolsonaro, who claimed coronavirus was a hoax, tested positive for it after having symptoms. Sadly, though, he's doing okay because trust karma not to work and make COVID the only thing Bolsonaro's not got zero tolerance for. Sup, pod types? I hope you're all wearing your face mask while listening to this, either to stifle those laughter droplets from piercing the faces of those near you, or just to muffle any sort of mean comments about that was a shit joke that you might make throughout. I can't fathom why people are so upset about wearing a mask. I mean, it's all I've wanted to do since I was a kid. Isn't that why superhero films are so popular now? Doesn't everyone love the mask? I mean, I can't wait to wear one when I go to the bank. It's just exciting. It's incredibly tempting to get some sort of Dick Turpin hat to go with it. I'm just saying, it's just a little material mask. You pop it on to go to the shop, you take it off when you leave, and you potentially save yourself and or someone else. I mean, the fuss people are making, you'd think they were being asked to clamp some sort of metal prison to their head like the man in the iron mask. The only reasons I can think why you wouldn't want to wear a mask are, one, well, because you have a medical breathing condition, and then that is very valid. Uh, Two, because you know your breath smells really bad, and you don't want to subject yourself to it, and you'd much rather let other people know you can't brush your teeth properly. Three, because you're worried people won't recognise you as that dickhead. Or four, because you've always wanted to be a serial killer, but didn't have the ambition or energy to do it, so this is the next easiest thing. Someone on the socials told me they didn't like being told what fashion accessory they had to wear as it limited their freedom. I mean, it's not really a fashion accessory, is it? It's sort of like protection, it's a bit more like a sort of seatbelt or something. Unless you want to get a funky design one, that's up to you, isn't it? I'm not seeing people go around saying, have you got the latest chic face mask? It really goes with my asymptomatic COVID. I just can't wrap my head around why you'd not want to do it for other people. It's like shouting, I refuse to wear trousers when I'm near the playground. It's limiting my freedom. I refuse to wear my spacesuit when fixing the International Space Station. It's limiting my freedom. Freedom of movement in the EU going. Everyone was fine with that. Well, you know, not the same people. Having to wear a small mask for all of five minutes in case your cough commits murder. Somehow that's tantamount to a human rights abuse. Uh, People's priorities are absolutely baffling to me. Um, your priorities, however, are 100% correct, for you are here. I don't know where that is. I mean, you could be anywhere uh, hearing this, but you are hearing this, uh, and that's the bit that I am super gratefulness for. Um, this week, a big, huge soppy thanks to Jeremy, Jackie B, James DL, Claire, Kim and Helen for donating to the Kofi, which is, again, so very helpful in these times where I'm wondering if I need to retrain in something COVID-proof, like, I don't know, being a warden of a remote island or something. Would that be COVID proof? Knowing my luck, probably probably not. Boris Johnson would probably visit it on holiday and then I'd get it. I'm sure something like that would happen. Um, but yeah, seriously, thank you for donating. The, the comedy world seems to be coming back. There seem to be odd little outdoor gigs and all the kind of notifications I'm getting back. We're going, hey, come and do this outdoor gig. Uh, it'll pay on a door split of our now smaller audience that may not turn up. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks very much. Um, Anyway, um, if you two fancy bunging me some dosh to live off because you like this noise, please head to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, which, hey, I understand you should now be able to set to either dollars, euros or pounds when you join it, making it work however is best for you, which is, I mean, like, do pounds because that currency is is gone wherever you are. Do pounds, it'll cost you nothing. Um, Let me know if you manage to work it all out. Uh, Also, this week, uh, thank you. 
thank you to Anne Pank in Spain, um, who gave a lovely review of the Parpol Bro live show that I broadcast live as an experiment on Friday. And while it didn't quite go to plan, um, for reasons if you've heard it, you'll know it was a lot of fun. Uh, and I released it as a bonus episode to all you subscribers if you want to listen for some reason too. Anyway, uh, Anne said in her review that she loved it, but she didn't know it was happening or she'd have called in. Um, I did post about it on Twitter, Facebook and mentioned it in this podcast last week. But I'm aware that that still doesn't mean any of you knew that it was on. So what is the best way to let you lot know about stuff if those aren't the best methods? Um, let me know. Like, Do I need a newsletter for this show? Do I need a monthly newsletter that goes out? What, what would be helpful? Anyway, um, let me know as I'm planning to do another live show, maybe in a couple of weeks. And I would love it if more of you fancied listening and especially calling in for a chat. Even more so if you actually uh, hear this podcast, unlike my one caller last week who didn't know who I was or what he was calling into. Do you have a listen if you haven't checked it out? Um, let me know anyway and I'll shout about whenever I do another one with as much notice as possible. Oh, and obviously, please do give this show a tasty review too uh, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox or any of those places that allow such things. Quick other bit of admin this week, as I keep forgetting, and I should have done this weeks ago, um, my brother, rapper and producer The Last Skeptic, whose music I steal for this here show, um, had a new single out a couple of weeks back called No Good Mess, and it's great, and I've been listening to it loads, even though, as I often say, as his brother, I should hate it, I just should. That's what older brothers are meant to do. I'm meant to hate everything he does, but I listen to it quite a lot. Um, do check it out if you like that sort of thing. Right, that is it. That's it for admin things this week. So let's get to the show. And uh, on the show today, I have a chat with the economics editor for Open Democracy, Laurie McFarlane, all about just what was in Rishi Sunak's summer statement and if any of it at all was any good. Spoilers, it wasn't. Uh, plus, I was going to bring back Brexit Fallout this week, but there's really not much to say that hasn't been mentioned on previous episodes. It's just the still the same again, but with even less time for some sort of intervention from the Norse gods. So instead, it's a little look at some PPE shenaniganry. 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 One of those words. <laughs> I don't know if you heard, uh, but there was a budget the other day, sort of. Well, it was actually an economic statement or a summer statement or a mini pop-up limited edition budget or whatever it is you want to call it when Rishi Sunak was doing his 18th work in progress show before the big performance in the autumn, but still hasn't really done any of the prep for it. And it really, really shows. Like with all the Chancellor's recent announcements since this pandemic started, it's felt a lot like we've all been part of a baying mob, hoping that it's our turn to catch the few breadcrumbs one of the rulers from the capital might sprinkle from above. So far, it hasn't really been anyone's feeding time, apart from those who've been consistently overstuffed since 2008. And unsurprisingly, Sunak's new statement for the post-Covid world that we'll likely never ever see was a lot more of the same. To summarise, it was great for people who have the money to buy a ton of houses, hate the planet, which is odd as they'll have a lot of houses on it, and would like to hire young people to do work for free. Oh, and also all of Dominic Cummings' friends, who are really, really good at getting paid to not supply PPE. For anyone else, especially the 2 million people who are registered as small limited companies or people with disabilities who've had less access to care and funds since this all started, well, don't worry, as all your financial fears can be allayed by going to Pizza Hut on a Tuesday and not eating very much at all. Rishi Sunak wouldn't want to buy a man a fish or teach him to fish. He'd be far happier giving him a voucher so he can get a discount on some overpriced fish while Sunak gives tax relief on a massively privately owned trawler. But who am I to explain exactly what this flash mob money shouting means for everyone when I'm just a simple idiot who doesn't understand financials apart from all the ones that mean after August I'll get no support because the comedy industry isn't important to Rishi as he's still happy laughing at the thought of a mop he once saw that looked like a skinny person with blue hair and he uses the word rufflecopter every time he thinks about it. So this week I thought I'd get someone clever on the podcast to explain exactly what was and more importantly wasn't in Sudak's statement. Thankfully, Laurie McFarlane, economics editor at Open Democracy, had time for a chat. As well as writing all about the money situ for Open Democracy, Laurie is also a fellow at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, looking at how public value is imagined and evaluated to tackle social issues. He's a trustee at the Finance Innovation Lab, working on a financial system that works for the people, and he also occasionally still works with the New Economics Foundation too, where he used to be based. So basically, Laurie knows what is and what isn't the good economics. And so even though we're all aware Sunak's statement was shit, I asked him to tell me exactly why it is, what it should have been for any of us to benefit from it, and if there's any hope at all other than us having to all befriend Dominic Cummings and promise we'd be unable to find a gown or face mask for several million pounds. I hope you enjoy. Here is Laurie. Hi Laurie, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, 
I mean, I, I've seen I've seen what you tweeted about the uh, the the mini budget, the summer statement. So I've got a feeling I know what you're going to say to this. Was it a good mini budget? Um, is it at all what's needed to propel the UK out of recession? I think it depends on uh, what you think uh, the goal should be right now. In many ways, the statement was really a kind of classic textbook approach to try and restore business as usual uh, as soon as possible. So the classic things of propping up the housing market by uh, scrapping stamp duty, while conveniently also ignoring private renters, you know, creating more low-paid jobs, minimum wage jobs, get people consuming again in the way they were before, while kind of ignoring the elephant in the room of, of the climate crisis. So in that sense, in a way to try and return to business as usual, I suppose, it, you know, it's it's not bad. There are big gaps still, as I said, if you're renting or, or self-employed, big gaps. The problem, though, is that I think that returning to business as usual is it's not possible uh, or desirable. And I think it kind of fundamentally undermines, underestimates that just how serious I think this crisis is, is being in terms of the way that it's fundamentally going to reshape our economy. Um, you know, many of the things that, 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 that were announced, things like the VAT cut um, for the hospitality sector, the voucher scheme for restaurants, all this stuff, it kind of relies, it only, it only has an effect if people actually decide to return, to go out to hotels and restaurants and do all this. And to do that, they have to obviously not be scared for their own safety. You know, they have to believe that, uh, you know, they won't contract coronavirus and give it to someone else. And I think that that's what they've kind of missed here is that what's stopping people from returning to business as usual is the fact that there is this, there is still this virus and we've not got rid of it. Um, and so I think that, yeah, they've, they've, they've sort of pretended that we can just all try and get back to business as usual now. And I just don't think we can. Yeah, it just felt like a lot of uh, terrible headline statements. I mean, the, the eat out to help out is still, I, I, I'm sure he must be aware, but even if he's not, it's even worse. I can't work out which, make it, which makes it worse. Um, but, you know, it, all these things seem very temporary and don't seem very good in the long term. And it, it, one of the big headlines was it's a mass job creation budget. But have many jobs been created from this? Because it, it, from my you know, sort of limited point of view, I, I, all the jobs for young people seem to be minimum wage or apprenticeships that don't actually pay. And there didn't seem to be anything really of substance. Yeah, I mean, on the margin, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the things that have been announced, there will be some jobs. I mean, uh, you know, there will be some jobs that might not be lost that would have otherwise have been lost. And, and obviously the, the job retention bonus is intended to do that, although designed very poorly in the sense that what it's basically doing is going to reward, it's going to give companies money who are probably going to bring people back anyway, and they're going to get a grand per person. But for the companies who are who who are really struggling and who were never going to bring people back and wouldn't even with the bonus, it doesn't really do anything. So it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a poorly designed uh, initiative. And then the, the scheme for young people, again, like I said earlier, you know, what they're doing is trying to create a bunch of sort of low, low paid employment um, and try and, sub, you know, try and subsidize the private sector to create these low paid jobs. Um, and I think that they've missed, really, they've missed a, a big opportunity in a weird way, an opportunity here, which is with all these interventions and, and all this necessary intervention, this should be the time where it's used to sort of put the UK economy on a fundamentally different path that is going to meet the challenges of the 21st century. And instead, what they're trying to do is sort of double down on the UK, on the, on the, on the problems that are already with us in the UK economy. Um, and, this, and, and there isn't really any, any, any policy here that I see that's going to actually put us on a fundamentally more uh, sustainable path. We're just going to try, he's just trying to get back to where we were. I, I can't remember which survey it was. This is how bad my research is, but it said something like 6% of the population I want the economy to return to how it was. So this doesn't feel like it's a, like anything he's done might be particularly popular apart from maybe cheap Nando's. Um, but e even then it seems very strange that they went down this direction rather than something that is a bit more forward thinking. I say it seems strange. I, I didn't have faith they'd do anything other, but you know, the, 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 the the stamp duty removal is that a boost in any way is that going to make the housing market any easier or more accessible for anyone i mean this is probably out of all of the policies that were announced the single worst one in the sense that even on its own terms it doesn't work um the treasury in 2012 under george osborne commissioned a study 
to look at the effects of what happened last time they basically gave a stamp duty holiday after the financial crisis. And, and what they found is that all that happens is that the tax cut is capitalized into higher house prices. And so the people who benefit are people who already own property, um, uh, who see the value of the property go up. It doesn't help buyers or first-time buyers or anything like that at all. If anything, it makes it more difficult for them because it pushes um, prices up. And of course, the other thing is that even before this announcement, um, first-time buyers were exempt on stamp duty up to £300,000 anyway. Uh, and this hasn't helped them. So it's basically a bung to you know, fairly wealthy, already existing homeowners. Uh, you know, the kind of classic Tory voting constituency base as it happens. Um, but it's really not going to do anything uh, to, to sort of help the situation that, that, that we're in just now in the dire, you know, crisis, economic uh, crisis that, that we're in. Uh, and of course, it's, it's expensive. It's, it's going to cost, uh, you know, multiples of billions in lost tax revenue for very little gain. And was any of it environmentally friendly either? Because, you know, we've got this the, the big uh, conference coming soon and uh, this whole thing was about being a greener UK, but there, there didn't seem to be much in the way of renewable energy or kind of investing in uh, environmentally friendly businesses. And, um, you know, or I think there was a little bit about refurbishing houses, wasn't there? But that, that seemed to be about it. Yeah, I mean, the, this is, uh, you know, the elephant in the room really is is, is this exact point, you know, um, very little of, of any of the announcements were going to in any way help the UK meet uh, our decarbonisation targets. You know, fundamentally, it's, what all we're doing is sort of trying to prop up our carbon intensive, you know, finance led unequal economic model, um, rather than moving towards one which, uh, you know, which is about decarbonizing the economy, about dealing with the inequalities that we see, et cetera. The only one small area you mentioned was um, on the, I think it's called the Green Homes Grant, which is basically, I think it's two billion pounds to to help people sort of retrofit their their, their homes and things like that. I mean, it's a drop in the ocean um, compared to what, we're, what we need to do. Um, we need to be retrofitting about 20 to 30,000 homes uh, a week, every week, for basically the next 30 years, if we're going to come even close to meeting the government's current targets. And this proposal is going to roughly deliver about 10, maximum 10,000 a week, just for 12 months. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is that basically it, it, it relies on the idea that we can, the, if people want to retrofit their homes, they can go out and there's people there willing to do it and all the skills are there, which much of the case, they just aren't. And so, you know, if it was up to me, I would have, I would have, put much more money towards uh, much more than two billion towards basically directly creating a public green public works initiative where the government is going to hire and train lots of people and new skills and who can actually go out and start retrofitting and, and installing energy efficiency across all of our housing stock because you know money is one constraint but the other constraint is yeah do we actually have the resources and skills and there's a whole load of people who are going to be facing you know, unemployment or losing their job. And there's just no real ambition to do any of that. It's, it's really sort of very, very small scale stuff. Um, and, and, and they're really not taking, I think anyway, their, their decarbonisation commitments anywhere near seriously enough. And, and would that be like, you know, one of the ways to do it? Because I, I'm, you know, uh, sort of aware that I'm quite naive in thinking, well, he's ignoring a lot of people. And there's, you know, the the forgotten uh, limited people that are, that are campaigning. There's I'm, I'm a comedian. We seem in quite a lot of trouble right now. There's there's whole swathes of the uh, population who aren't really getting any funds and aren't accessible to anything. But is it possible to save everyone's jobs? I mean, would a sort of green work initiative help? Are there other things that they should be doing that, that might get us out of what is a very exceptional situation? So I don't think so. It's it's not about saving everyone's jobs, as in the jobs that people currently have just now. I think, as I say, because what we're looking at here is not it's not a short term crisis um, like the financial crisis, where it's you know it's caused by the banking sector, and um, and as long as you fix that with you know throwing more money at it, we can get everything moving again. We're looking at a profound change to the way that our economy uh, is going to work and is going to is going to work, and I think. We are going to see for, for some time less jobs in things like, um, you know, retail or hospitality, um, all this kind of all this kind of stuff. But it's not about throwing these jobs under the bus. It's about making sure that people have a, a, 
a significant um, safety net, which no one can fall below, regardless of whether you're in employment or not. Um, you should have enough money to 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 live. And we were at uh, we were doing some work around uh, a living income guarantee to make to to try and make sure that no one is suddenly having to find themselves living off ninety pounds a week as you're if you're if you're if you're on universal credit, for example. But then it's also about um, sort of using government policy and using uh, government investment to invest in the jobs that we need in the future as i say that's going to take us away from our carbon intensive um unequal economic model towards one that's focused on the needs of the 21st century towards things that are focusing on human and uh ecological well-being and there's huge amounts of stuff that we need to do you know it's it's not just about retrofitting homes which we already talked about um, it's about building uh, new homes it's about restoring uh, the natural environment uh, restoring peatlands you know planting uh, lots of trees and new forests, upgrading our transport and energy infrastructure in a way that's low carbon. It's about investing crucially in, in health and social care areas that have been, you know, dramatically underinvested in in the past, which is partly why the UK's performance has been so poor in this. So there's lots of things that we need to be doing and could be doing uh, that that we're just not, which would also, um, you know, have the have the benefit of creating jobs for people who are who are currently perhaps um, out of work or may shortly be out of work and won't necessarily see the prospect of getting that job back anytime soon. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we'll be back with Laurie in a minute. But first, now, look. We've all spent money on silly things during this crisis, haven't we? For me, it was booze and a box full of uh, tomato ketchup crisps. A full a full box. There was about 32 packs in there. Do I regret those things? No. Does my liver and growing waistline? Yes. But at least I knew what I was getting for not that very much cash. I got it, not crisps. Whereas the government don't have quite the same excuse. I mean, to say there's been some shenanigans with government money during the COVID crisis would be an understatement, uh, allegedly. For the shenanigans be so many, the alleged shenanigans, they be shemenigans. The government have, as they've often stated, spent quite a lot of money on areas that we needed, such as testing or PPE. But when you look into just how and who they spent that money on, it's a lot like me saying I've definitely given the money I raised to charity, and then you find out that charity is the name of my drug dealer. I mean, it's not. I'm far too old to have any fun anymore. So here is a quick rundown of what I'm talking about. And I should say that all these things are being followed currently by either journalists at Open Democracy or by the Good Law Project, which is led by Fox enemy Joe Maugham and Fawcett Society CEO Sam Smithers. And the latter of those groups, the Good Law Project, um, you can donate to the crowdfunders to take some of these cases to court, should you wish. I mean, it'd definitely be a far more sensible use of money than anything the government have done for a while. Um, or maybe buy lots of crisps. First up is PPE spending, which the government took ages and ages to do. And then in late March, after most of the rest of the world had already got theirs in, they spent a massive £5.5 billion on contracts for. You might think that maybe it's because it was so last minute, all the personal protective equipment was much more expensive. You know, like when you try to buy a ticket for an event and the only way to get one is to buy off a scam website that would charge you your life savings to sit near a bin where the only sound you can hear from the stage is someone being sick outside. 
but it doesn't seem to be the case here as to why it was so much. More, it seems to be because a lot of it was going to companies that weren't perhaps suitable or had incorrect equipment. For example, you might know about the 400,000 gowns from Turkey who weren't even suitable to go to the ball in, let alone treat COVID patients with. The way the government got their contractors was by opening up its gov.uk portal on March 27th, and they received 24,000 offers from 16,000 suppliers, which sounds really good, except they didn't respond to the places that were best suited to help. Volker Schuster, for example, a Liverpool-based supplier to the construction industry, said the government took so long to respond, they ended up sending their 10 million face masks to other countries instead. Same happened to hand sanitizer companies and textile companies all offering to make PPE. So who did they hire instead? Well, £108 million went to Clandboy Agencies Limited, a company of which there is no real evidence of experience in supplying PPE, but what they do do is the wholesale of sweets. Uh, So, you know, maybe you could say there was a confusion in exactly what lifesavers are for. And look, hey, sure, I don't want someone uh, rubbing their sweaty balls on my gobstoppers. Uh, Not a euphemism. But their wholesaler's not a factory, and it's really odd that they got the contract without any sort of tender process at all. Another £32.4 million went to Crisp Websites Limited, who trade as PestFix, a pest control company. It does make a bit more sense that they'd have PPE, or at least know what it is, in order to stop ants in their pants-based issues while on the job. But the company only had net assets of £18,000, and they were paid £24 million up front without any tender process at all for isolation suits before they were even delivered. The suits were then held in a warehouse and not tested, and the government hasn't followed its own rules and published the agreed contracts, which is meant to do within 20 days of the transaction. The Good Law Project have issued judicial review proceedings, but the Department of Health have been pretty cagey about it, and Pestfix's lawyers have responded to their claim by saying it's an unwelcome distraction from their work fixing pests, and the uh, Good Law Project should withdraw, which is a very polite way of saying please don't ask any more questions as we might have to answer them. To be fair though, their lawyers did also present a background of Pestfix supplying NHS trusts with equipment for 11 years, whether or not that was PPE or just going around killing the occasional bug and there were also they said no recalls of the PPE that they supplied during the coronavirus case but it should still be questioned why such a large contract was handed to them with no tender process at all and why the contract itself still isn't being released. Then there's also Allende Capital Limited which is a company with net assets of £322 and they say they're a family office which is when a family has so much money they need to make a company to manage it. They trade in currency and are owned by a family with assets in Mauritius which is a massive tax haven. One of its senior board advisors is also an advisor to Liz Truss's board of trade. Yes, she has advisors. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that anyone ever gave her any information? The government paid Ienda Capital Limited a quarter of a billion pounds to supply face masks, which, hey, maybe this family is super rich as they all gather around the dinner table and churn out specialist face masks all day long, raking in the dough. But again, the government hasn't published the contract. So at the moment, it just looks like a lot of one of their pals cashed out. So far, the government response to the Good Law Project has mainly been just, well, we paid them this money for this thing which they supplied, which still leaves all the same questions as to why completely unanswered. Maybe I'm the one who can't think outside the box, and maybe the best places for protective medical equipment are a sweet wholesaler, a wasp murderer and a rich family, in the same way during the no-deal prep last year, a company that owned absolutely no ferries was obviously the best place for a £50 million ferry service contract. Perhaps the government are just operating their own field of dreams scenario, enabling these minor sweet makers the funds to become so much more and actually helpful in life for once. Or at least, you know, help the government make lots of ghosts gather in one place. Second possible shenanigans area is Public First, a company that's been awarded £840,000 for researching public opinion. Which is silly, as I look at Twitter most days and I can tell you public opinion within minutes for less than half of that. Still, Public First is a small company run by James Frain, who's worked with Dominic Cummings several times over 20 years, including running the campaign against joining the Euro with him and co-founding a right-wing think tank. And Rachel Wolfe, who used to be an advisor to Michael Gove and obviously wasn't good at it, or she'd have told him to wear a paper bag on his head before going outside. She ran the New Schools Network promoting free schools and was given half a million quid at the time on the basis that that Wolfe had the only organisation able to give expert support as quickly as they needed it. There was no tender process to give Public First an £840,000 contract because emergency Covid law said that they didn't need to be. So instead it was just handed to them willy-nilly for research done on the coronavirus crisis. The contract didn't appear until three months after their commission to do work and included the transfer of Public First partner Gabriel Milland to number 10, a man who worked at the Department of Education when Gove was Education Secretary and Cummings was his advisor. 
When questioned if the company were only given the work because they were chums with the boss, the cabinet office spokesperson said it was nonsense and they got it due to their experience in the area. But without any competition, it just looks like cronyism. Again, the Good Law Project believe the contract is unlawful without correct tender, regardless of coronavirus legislation, and they're trying to take it to trial. This is not the first of Cummings' friends' companies that have had contracts recently, with Faculty, the firm that provided AI for vote leave, getting contracts of up to £1 million in just 18 months, with the chief executive attending SAGE meetings back in May. Cummings' own company also paid them £260,000 but won't reveal what for. We also know 11 private companies were involved in the failed track and trace app that cost £11 million, but the Department of Health has not yet revealed who they are, and £400 million has been spent on OneWeb for the UK's own satnav system, despite them not having the correct type of satellite. Cummings was the one to push for that specific company. Now look, I'm not saying any of it is definite shenanigans, and I'm sure the Westminster bubble is so small that everyone knows everyone, and so of course you're going to hire someone that's connected to you somehow. But some of it sounds particularly dodgy, with a lack of transparency, obvious links between parties, and the fact that, look, I'm an idiot, and I still reckon I could find companies actually good at doing stuff to hire, rather than ones who are best known for, I don't know, sugar mice and space junk. The fact is, it's public money that's being used, so we should all have access to finding out what it's being used for, and knowledge that there's been fair competition in allocating it, even if looking all that stuff up is massively boring and no one really has the time. Am I jealous? Well, of course, because I'd love to give all my friends dosh or at least be hired for something I'm completely unsuitable for and handed money without question. Stupid, stupid me for having all the wrong friends. But this is much more than that. As the wonderful Wikipedia says, crony capitalism corrupts public serving economic, political and social ideas. So either we have to question it and call it out because corruption, or oh god, we all have to make friends with Dominic Cummings and I don't want to do that as he seems like an absolute tit. I mean, he didn't even spend any of that money on tomato ketchup crisps. What a loser. If you want to donate to any of the Good Law Project's crown funders, you can find them at goodlawproject.org and please support Open Democracy's investigative work too at opendemocracy.org. And now, back to Laurie. Uh, is um because I was speaking to you today. You're in Edinburgh. Is is Scotland doing anything different? Because I I know uh, I saw someone say that they the money that was um given under the Barnet didn't quite meet meet the Barnet formula this time round. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but is is Scotland doing things slightly differently with the money they're being allocated? So I mean, in terms of uh social, in terms of health and social policy, obviously the response has been slightly different in Scotland. We've been on a different timeline in terms of getting things uh, easing the lockdown restrictions, taking a slightly slower approach than the UK government, which I think has been good. Um, and we've seen you know, infections fall dramatically now, and, and I think Scotland's looking quite good. On the economic front, it's, it's, it's quite difficult um, for the Scottish government to, do, to take a radically different path in terms of economic policy than the UK government, because although the Scottish government has quite a lot of powers over things like health and education policy, in terms of actual economic levers and powers, that is basically still quite dependent on what the UK government does, um, and and don't necessarily have a, a huge amount of powers to take a radically um, different approach. And so on the on the economic front, and and incidentally, the the um, the HM Treasury were quite clear that if the Scottish government did, for example, say, "Well, hold on a minute, we are going to we're going to have a longer lockdown." Um, and and that's dependent on the furlough scheme continuing. The Treasury said, well, actually, um, we're not going to fund the furlough scheme beyond the length that we're going to do it. Um, and so to some extent, the, there's only the, a limited amount of things that it can do uh, differently. But um, where there has been where there has been that, that power to do things differently, there has been a, a bit of a difference. Yeah, well, I, I saw that even a very small thing, but I saw that Scotland, for example, gave uh, a certain amount of funding to arts venues, which just for, it took a lot longer to happen in England. And, uh, yeah, was exactly. a lot I think it was 10 million like that. Yeah. Yeah, which is just, oh, oh you've, you've got there quick. You know what the issues are. Um, I mean, there's so many other countries that seem to be doing this a lot more sensibly. Um, you know, are there, are there places that we should? I mean, I know, I know that the, the UK government doesn't like to compare themselves to anywhere else in the world, but are there places we should really be looking at? That, that are doing this brilliantly. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been quite funny, not funny, but weirdly, uh, it's really sort of grating on this crisis, is that every time the UK government announces something, it describes it how, it, how it's world-leading. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's almost, it's almost a parody, because what, what they actually mean is, that world, like, literally among the world's worst. You know, the test and tracing app that was supposed to be up and running now, you know, 
still doesn't work and probably isn't going to work. But at the time, it was going to be world leading. And many of the things that was announced yesterday by Rishi Sunak, they were all world leading. And it's just that sort of arrogance, you know, of of always having to caveat everything as being world leading, which is, um, yeah, which is, which is, yeah, not great. In terms of other other countries, I mean, I think you know places like New Zealand, uh, obviously, you know, dealt with it very well, took took action very very early on, um, and managed in a position now where they're actually kind of, uh, you know, have, things are, are much further ahead than we are here. Australia, places like Germany, etc., as well. The, the challenge that the UK government have got, though, uh, is that there's a there's a path dependency here because they mess things up so badly at the beginning. They delayed taking action for so long. Um, they decided to stop the, the the tracing way back in March, which was you know a ridiculous move. Um, they made big mistakes with care homes and things like that. They've now gotten some to, uh, uh, they didn't have enough PPE equipment. For example, all these big, big, massive mistakes that were made early on, we're now paying the price for further down the line. Um, and it's very difficult for us to say, you know, it's very difficult for us to suddenly become New Zealand or whatever, because we're paying the price for having been so bad for so long um, that, 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 yeah, if we could rewind the clock and make different decisions earlier on. We could be in a much better place now, but no one's invented time travel yet. So we're. I really we're, wish we're I'd hurry up. up. Yeah, if if we ever needed it, the last few years have, have been the moment, the moment to come from the future and uh, and help us out. Um, I mean, that's another thing I was going to say. You know, does any of what Rishi Sunak said uh, yesterday, or in any of the billions of budgets we've had since March, does any of it matter if we're having a No Deal Brexit in uh, at the end of the year? <laughs> Brexit, remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would be, I'm not going to put anything past this government. I'm really not. But I would be astonished, astonished if, given where we are and given we're looking at the deepest recession in, in living memory, and out of all the countries, the UK having one of, if not the deepest recessions, partly because of how badly how badly managed the whole response has been, I would be astonished if they went ahead with a no-deal Brexit. I mean, it, it really is like they have a, a, you know, a suicide wish or, or something like that. It really is. I mean, I mean, I would be because to compound um, to compound all of the the serious issues that we've got at the moment and the, and the the quite significant damage that our economy is 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 taking just now to compound that with a with an audio Brexit, which would, I mean, certainly in the short term would would absolutely cause quite a lot of disruption. Um, again probably quite significantly increase unemployment etc i just think it would be it would be it would be madness and so I, I am assuming that they're going to be avoiding that either by backing down probably um on i just i'm i'm expecting the government to sort of back down on some of the positions it was staking out earlier on because it's it, it it's counting on everyone believing the whole get they've got brexit done thing hoping that everyone thinks Brexit's done and everyone's kind of forgotten about it. And then very quietly, they'll sort of back down and accept, um, you know, some some of the, the EU's conditions and, and and come to some kind of deal. But I could be wrong. I wouldn't put anything past Boris Johnson, as I said. Yeah, it is. It's it's amazing. Isn't it? Every time I think, well, they wouldn't do that, and then then they do it. And you go, ah, oh, this yeah. is this is unbelievable. Um, well, I was going to ask you the the the, the question that I normally ask all the guests, but before I do, actually, um, is there anything is there anything hopeful? <laughs> is there anything that we we can be hopeful about uh, economy wise or finance wise? Is there anything that because uh, I think right now is quite a scary time for quite a lot of people, and I just wonder if there's anything that that we we should be looking at and thinking, ah, oh, well, that that you know might not be so bad or. Yeah, I mean, I think... That's a hard question, yeah, sorry. It's, it's, no, it's, it's easy to despair. I mean, one of the things that I'm finding hope from is um, uh, there are some really interesting examples locally uh, of of local authorities or, or doing things differently. So I'm on the advisory board of... It's a North Ayrshire Council's Community Wealth Building Unit. So they have taken inspiration from some of the stuff that's been happening in Preston and also in the US. And... Um, basically looking at, at all the different sort of powers and assets that a local authority has in order to think how can they actually do things differently? How can they keep and create and retain wealth locally? How can they create new forms of enterprise and things like cooperative models of ownership, worker ownership, and more sort of inclusive models of enterprise? How can they rapidly decarbonize the local economy, etc.? cetera? Um, and there's lots of interesting stuff happening there. And I think these things are super important 
obviously in and of themselves, but also just to demonstrate that you can do things differently um, and demonstrate that you can make a difference locally. Because um, right now, on the, on the at least on, the, as you say, on the big sort of national level scale, uh, it's very difficult to see. Um, it's very difficult to, to to see anything, you know, good enough happening, and it's easy to despair. So there are some local initiatives that I think are are really inspiring, and um, that hopefully we'll see more of uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I do really like the sort of well, if they aren't going to do it, we should do it attitude, which uh, I think is is very positive, definitely. Um, yeah, well, thanks tons uh, for for explaining all that to me. And and um, I, the one thing that I do ask all our guests really is that apart from yourself um, and Open Democracy and the Finance Lab, who else? would you recommend that listeners follow or read for progressive and informative um, economic information? Like who are your go-to people? Who do you like, uh, you know, uh, following on Twitter or, or reading? Yeah. I mean, I, I should also say um, uh, there's a number of other great organizations as well that, that people should follow. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm also a fellow of the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, which was set up by uh, Professor Ma- Ma- Mariana Mazzucato um, a couple of years ago Um who are doing great work um, and they've got a blog as well with lots of interesting stuff on it. Um, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, uh, again, is also another really interesting organization, fairly new, only set up a couple of years ago, but doing lots of great work in terms of how the economy needs to change, as I say, to, to, to one that's oriented around human and, and ecological well-being. Um, and the Democracy, Democracy Collaborative, who are actually a US uh, based in, in DC, but who have sort of pioneered a lot of the community wealth building work that I just talked about is happening in, in North Ayrshire that I'm involved with. Um, they've been a really, yeah, a really sort of influential um, organization sort of pioneering this stuff and making things happen on the ground. So, and, and all of these organizations have, you know, blogs, um, websites, et cetera, as well. And finally, um, I think you've had on before the New Economics Foundation, um, who I used to work with and I'm still still a fellow of, who've always got really great um blogs and articles and reports so everyone should check them out as well thank you to laurie for having the time uh, in what was already a very busy week for him post mini economic budget statement pop-up doodah uh, you can follow laurie on twitter at l underscore underscore mcfarlane that's m-a-c-f-a-r-l-a-n-e uh, and you can read his articles and many other brilliant investigative articles at open democracy on opendemocracy.net or at open democracy on twitter the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose are at ucl.ac.uk forward slash IIPP or at IIPP underscore UCL on Twitter. And the Finance Innovation Lab is financeinnovationlab.org or the Finance Lab on the Twitters. Um, I think I've got the next few weeks of guests lined up, but what about the next few years of guests, right? I mean, assuming we make it to 2021. Let me know who, and actually more importantly right now, just what I should be talking to people about. Do we need some political philosophy about new ideas that will help a post-corona no-deal wasteland that isn't some sort of Mad Max-style race to the death? Or do you want climate experts explaining proactive methods of making sure we don't all melt? Or maybe a defence expert talking about how best to build a bunker and live in it for 50 years? What do you need? Let me know, and you can do that, as always, at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write it on a letter and physically post it, but when I get it, I'll assume it's a cake after seeing that video where everything is a cake, and then I'll eat it, not see your suggestion, and be very sad I haven't had cake. It'd be the absolute worst of days. Please don't do that. Please send cake. But obviously, also, you know, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? and that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast thank you for listening uh and of course you've made it all the way to the end of the show so here is your reward a fascinating par pole bro hot politics gossip fact yes this week's political fact that politicians are kept hidden from you by not even knowing i've made it up is all about masks which masks have made the most impact in political history? Is it the infamous Guy Fawkes mask, which was made famous by literary wizard Alan Moore and his book V for Vendetta, and has since been used by hacktivists Anonymous, the Occupy movement, and many more anti-government protests, as well as the online garbage fire right-wing blog site Guido Fawkes that sort of cancels out the others? And all of that despite the fact that actually Guy Fawkes was a religious terrorist who wasn't against oppression, he just wanted the Catholics to do it. Is it balaclavas worn by the IRA during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, but also by activist Russian punk group Pussy Riot when staging guerrilla shows against undercooked sausage Vladimir Putin? Oh, and balaclavas are also worn by toddlers in the park in winter. 
No, it's the one that's been worn by former Conservative MP and train wanker Michael Portillo, as despite it being obvious he has a big rubber face, absolutely no one has ever realised it's a mask, and were it to be removed, they'd find a series of pulleys and gears controlled by angry gerbils who use the railways to visit their allies and transport illegal seed mix around the globe. True story. Entirely true. Not even going to say allegedly with this one. And that was this week's Pop Harbro Hot Pole Goss Fact. If you liked that or it made you so sad you cried a river, then why not share the secrets and benefits of DIY land irrigation with everyone you know and tell them about this here podcast. Better yet, give the show a review on those there podcast apps like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you can afford to, please fling me some dosh at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or on the ACAR supporter scheme, which you can now do with the press of a button or something. I think that was a jingle earlier. Thanks big time to ACARS, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and Mushy Bees. And this will be back next week when the government say that face masks are mandatory in shops, but not necessarily on your face. And Dominic Raab is seen parading around Harrods wearing one on each elbow and knee, telling staff they're definitely safe around him as he knows karate. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by Dominic Cummings. No, it wasn't. I was just, just hoping he'd give me several million pounds. Oh, well, worth a try. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.